Inside the halls of American hospitals, millions of people find comfort, healing, and support. But for many doctors and nurses, this couldn't be further from the truth. This podcast will dive into the shadows of American healthcare to investigate and uncover the abuse, control, and political power plays that leave the very people responsible for our nation's health broken and battered. We're sharing stories of professionals in medicine that have experienced horrendous treatment at the hands of a broken system that does nothing to stop the trauma. As the Association of American Medical Colleges states, long before the Me Too movement, women in medicine have instinctively banded together to counter a culture that too often tolerated harassment. From systemic trauma to abusive power to the unspoken rules of cover-ups and corruption, Mandy Irby and Phoebe will take you to the darkest corners of healthcare in America so you can have an inside look at bringing humanity back to medicine. Sensitive content warning. This podcast will share details of triggering subjects such as sexual assault and workplace violence. So if you aren't in a space to listen, respect your mental health and tune in again at another time. Hello and welcome back to the Pulse Check Podcast. My name is Mandy. I'm Hee. Hey y'all, welcome back. And we're really excited to get into this topic with Dr. Chrissy Sheeler is our guest today. And we are talking about the language gap in medicine on the path to trauma-informed care. That title was written by Dr. Sheeler. She is a family medicine practitioner and she will do a little bit of intro inside of this podcast episode, but oh my gosh, he, he, I am thrilled. I met Dr. Sheeler on Instagram and DM. Can you believe it? I can't. I'm so excited. So I have not met uh, Dr. Chrissy and I hear really good things about her. I'm stoked about this conversation from when I understand she really centers patients. And I think that is going to be such a pivotal conversation for so many of our listeners. Yeah. So I, I'm going to disclose I'm recording this after the episode because we literally just got into it. We just got into it. So she is, so this is our little intro. So fast forward 10 seconds, but she's going to actually give you examples of non-threatening language to use to start changing your practice. And we talk about, we got into like a pretty heated discussion in our DMs that we share with you about using different language. So I encourage you to listen through to the end. She gives a lot of good resources and her pronouns are she, her, and she's also asked us to call her Chrissy. So that's why we refer to her as Chrissy, but she is Dr. Schuler as well. Thank you for joining us and we'll just get into it. Are we um, keeping this topic specifically related to birth? So I was really hoping not actually, because a lot of, at least in my experience with, with people who undergo reproductive care, a lot of the gap comes from the fact that how they're treated in the office and how they're treated in the birthing space are different and they're not expecting such a wide chasm, right? And that's getting more and more noticeable when it comes to trauma-informed language because different providers are in different spaces when it comes to their own journey with trauma-informed care. And so birthing folks or people who undergo pelvic exams or, you know, stuff like that, I'm I'm seeing this kind of disconnect between why does this doctor call it this or talk about this or do this and this doctor doesn't. Yeah. And that's really becoming noticeable as I practice here in Canada, because in Canada, the way we do prenatal care is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Family doctors will oftentimes do their prenatal care until like 28 to 32 weeks. 
And then have you transitioned to an OB-GYN if that family doctor doesn't have privileges at the hospital? And so at like 28, 32 weeks, all of a sudden, it's like someone speaking a different language sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's your connection because you're in family practice. Yes. And I, through my training, through residency, um, I did a lot of prenatal care, reproductive care. That was my jam in residency was like sex ed, adolescence, and reproductive care. So I was very fortunate to get really great education. And then it became very noticeable. Like the more you're trained, the more you realize that some people aren't. And now I'm in a very different space and kind of recognizing that this is not maybe as widespread as I had initially presumed, but yeah, 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 yeah. And, and patients and clients and consumers recognize it very quickly. Yes. Yes. Even, even colleagues. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm currently in private practice and hired nursing staff and they are phenomenal. They're excellent. They've also have limited experience in family medicine. So when we were started talking about reproductive care, like specifically pap smears and pelvic exams, one of the first things that we kind of started doing was talking about trauma-informed care and what language do you use and what kind of things do you say to a patient versus what do you write? in the note versus what do you tell me? Cause they all are sometimes very different. And it was a little eye opening that like these women who I work with, who are medical professionals had also never been talked to like this before. So they didn't even think to say it from personal experience. Right. It's never been modeled. No, it's never been taught. It's never been said. It's never been modeled. And so they wouldn't have any idea that there's an alternative unless someone like you, a leader or their facility, or they found a peer group. Right. Right. That's how we would kind of find that out, read a book, get onto social media and start being like, what is going on? What is this reproductive health? What is this? Why are we saying this? Right. Exactly. And it is, it always blows my mind that the the spectrum, right? There's some people who go, "Hmm, whatever. And then I have patients who are survivors of sexual assault or have had really traumatic experiences with healthcare and to watch their entire, like almost being open up the minute they are, are hearing this language. Amazing to see. And the more you see that, the more you recognize, oh my goodness, this type of language is so important for so many people that I would never have thought had I not started speaking this way or heard someone else speak this way. Because you can see how it literally makes a safe space versus doesn't make a safe space. You can see it. You can feel it. You can. It's just the energy. It's the way that your patient looks and talks to you and confides in you. It's what they share and don't share. That is huge. Can I ask who is initiating these conversations? It started out, sounds like just you kind of bringing this, but do you ever have nurses and colleagues that come to you and say like, Hey, I noticed you said X, Y, and Z. I'm wondering why, or I want to start using this language, or I've never heard that before. Yeah. So it's kind of a mixture of both, depending on when you, I guess, start the story in my own learning. So unclear if you know, listeners will know, but medical training uh, requires medical school and then residency. 
And residency is several years, depending on your specialty, where you are supervised to various levels um, of intensity by physicians who have you know, completed their training. They're called attendings. So when I was a resident and was in my first year, we call it our intern year, my program started by giving us a certain level of reproductive and trauma-informed training before we ever saw a patient to ensure that our skills in terms of pap smears and other kind of sensitive exams were there and that we were doing things in a respectful way. And I was incredibly fortunate that my attendings, my essentially leaders in residency were very young, like only a couple years out of residency themselves and had an incredibly diverse sphere of specialties. So like I had one who was very involved in LGBTQ and HIV care. I had several who were incredibly knowledgeable on reproductive um, and women's health. And so they were very forward and took the initiative to make sure that when they watched you or when they were involved in you providing this care for a patient, they flat out told you, don't say that. Do not say that this is a better option. Or, you know, she looked really uncomfortable. I don't know if you picked up on it, but you might've heard me say this and this, and this is why. And you kind of pick that up by osmosis a little bit. When I got into my second and third year and it became obvious that I was, had a knack for reproductive care and that I liked this stuff. I really wanted to kind of push that forward and made sure that my interns. So the first years in the program, when I was a third year in chief, that they knew why I was doing what I was doing and was very specific. If I was going to send an intern into a room, look, this is what this is going to look like. I like to say this. I like to say that. Um, Later on, it became much more because I had gotten in the habit of it. And now with my, with my current staff, it's much more learner led where they'll ask me, you know, why do you say this? Or you were in there for a really long time. Like, what did you guys talk about? And, and stuff like that, which gives me the opportunity to say, you know, yes, absolutely. You're going to do the PAP, but I just wanted to make sure that there wasn't anything in their history that was going to make this really difficult. And so we could kind of talk it through and, and see if there were some strategies that we could come up with and stuff. And that has been really eye-opening that change in the last couple of years where people are more open to asking why people are having these conversations. One half a step back, that phrase is one of the phrases I think that contributes to this confusion or like kind of like code switching almost. And I know that's, that's not technically code switching, but it is <laughs> right. Like code switching, my understanding would be in the African-American black indigenous communities having right a vernacular yes. language, right. Cultural way of speaking that is culturally appropriate. Yes. In their families, friend group. And then changing when they speak to white folks or predominantly white spaces. Yes. Is that- because they feel like they have to because white people have made them feel like they exactly it's a way, not because they want to. Right. No. And I, so I think that that's probably the biggest example of code switching. Okay. But I would hazard to guess that as women in medicine, you both probably code switch fairly regularly, how you talk to, you know, your 60 year old male colleague is probably different than how you talk to, you know, 
people within your own peer group. We even code switch when we talk to our parents versus our friends. And it's, it's a protective mechanism, right? It's, it's how you can fit into that space. I think the biggest difference is, is that for a lot of folks, when they code switch, they do it for their own, I guess, comfort level versus like black folks. From what I understand from speaking to people within that community is more driven at least in part by, by safety and others comfort levels. Yes. Not their own. Yes, absolutely. So, okay. So thank you to clarify. So maybe it is code switching. Maybe it is something worse, Mm -hmm. but you said, I wanted to see, you're going to do the PAP to the resident. You're going to do the PAP. I wanted to see if there was anything in the history or parts of the story that we could understand better in case that would make this PAP more difficult. Yeah. So I, I guess the exact line that I typically use is, is there anything that you need me to know about in your history that would make an examination like this more difficult for you? And it is a very open-ended question in order to try to get, to see if somebody is comfortable talking about their past medical racism or sexual assault or uncomfortable paps or anything like that. And their answer then is reflected by what we do as a decision. If they go, this is yes. And they give me an answer. A lot of times I will end up doing the pap a, so they don't have to disclose twice and B because I know that I have more experience. Yeah. Love the way that's question is phrased. That makes me feel good. If someone were to ask me that and I'd be like, yeah, I actually kind of have a laundry list of how this could be more difficult for me. Do you care to hear or what, where are right. we in that? <laughs> right. And then the response would, would make it so that I either tell you or I don't tell you the language, the word difficult caught me because I had a feeling that that, and I'll explain to the listeners in a second, why I had a feeling that that was what you were going to say. And I'm I really love, and thank you for sharing that your language was to the client mm-hmm. and you use the word difficult, which is funny to me because that language is used outside of a patient's room about patients yes. centering healthcare providers and their difficulty level in performing the exam. Yes. So that's a one, two punch right there. You're using the same language, but yes. you're not saying to make this exam more difficult for you to perform, you're not saying that to your peer or your resident. Right. You're no, saying because... more difficult for the client to experience and how can we alleviate any of yes. that, reduce barriers and and continue consensually is ultimately what that is. Right, because at least for me, my level of difficulty in performing a PAP is irrelevant, right? Like if I decide to completely cross boundaries, I can get the PAP done. I'll be committing obstetrical violence as I do it, but I can certainly get the PAP done. The question is more like, I'm never going to leave an exam room thinking, wow, that exam absolutely traumatized me as a provider. I'm never doing another PAP. Like nobody has ever said that, but my patient or the the person who's having it performed Mm -hmm could very well at the end of this go, that was a completely traumatic experience. I am never having that done again. So why, why center my 
Like it's, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I also use the word difficult because it's vague enough that it doesn't let somebody think I'm only talking about their physical issues, right? Like it's, I, I want them to kind of look at the breadth of their experiences and, and decide what they're comfortable sharing with me, because what makes a pelvic exam difficult for, let's say a 65 year old postmenopausal woman, which is anatomical, right? Like a lack of lubrication and, and the resulting anatomical issues is very different than my 22 year old who was involved in intimate partner violence and is having flashbacks when I, you know, show them what a speculum looks like. It's also the last question I ask in my kind of spiel. We, we go through several minutes of talking first, where we go in detail about what a pap is going to look like before we ever do it. So no one's surprised by the instruments. Nobody's surprised by anything. We sit the back of the table up and we comment that we do it so that they can lay eyes on me and I can see them. So if they're not comfortable saying words, we can have that, you know, body language conversation. I let them know that I will tell them everything that I'm doing before I do it. So they're never surprised. And I'll do that through a combination of verbally and then with hands so they can feel if they're not able to process well. We talk about, is there someone you want to bring in with you? Do you want to be your support system? Do you want to listen to music? And if you do, how do you want me to communicate with you? And then we always finish it with, if you say stop, we stop. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. We're just done. We're just done. If you want to stop and ask a question, I'll answer it. If you want to stop and be stopped, that's it. And we don't have to worry about it. And so because we kind of go through that whole thing beforehand, Mm -hmm. it relays the, it relays to them that this is really trying to center you Mm -hmm. and get you to be empowered in this moment. And so if you think there's something extra that we need to know about, then let's talk about it before we do anything. Since we're already in the conversation, right? Like, let's talk about it now. Because they're thinking that this is bringing that up already. And you're anticipating that because you're the provider, you're the professional, you do, I don't know, 20 of these a day, more or less. So <laughs> you should be, we, we should be anticipating that the next thought is going to be, but why do I have to have my top off? Right. What's going to make it difficult is that my chest is yes. going to make it difficult is that my last thought personally, and I shared this publicly, was a whole new thing for me was going for the recent pap and I was facing the door. So my oh, thought was, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> my chatch is facing the door. I have a problem with that. I'm not asking you to move the bed, but I, I'm just bringing it into the space because it is yep. definitely within me right now. And they might be like, I can't, I can't literally move the bed for you, but here's what like, Oh, okay. I didn't even think about that. Thank you. Because they've, you know, you've already proven, hopefully the goal would be like, you're here, your, your difficulty is well above the things that I've said, because I've already said, how do you want this? How do you want that? How do I can right. stop all this work? We're done. It's, yes. it's literally, you are literally up here and I am supporting you and to have this experience. And so then I might be able to tell you. Yes. And that statement about, if you say, stop, we stop, that's it. And it's said with, and I say it like that with 
short language and without explanations and just being done to convey a level of ease of, I am, don't really care if we don't end up doing this. Like, I want you to get good health. Like I want you to get good healthcare. I want you to get adequate screening, but like in the grand scheme of things, I have no motivation to like power through a difficult exam for the sake of a difficult exam. So, and that's kind of why I say it like that so that they convey like, oh, like Dr. Sheeler really doesn't care if this is hard for her. Like she'll just stop or we'll go slow or whatever. Like she's cool with it. And you've already sat there for 15 minutes. (laughs) It's already been 15 minutes, which is already longer than any of my appointments (laughs) ever in my life, except my last path. (laughs) You are three people behind now with that 15 minute <laughs> appointment. <laughs> and everyone knows it because we've been told, okay, you have any questions? You're already gone. They're right. Already, that's no exactly. Problem. Exactly. But it's very few people that I've ever spoken to about like why I'm late to my next appointment has ever been upset by me saying we were doing a, you know, we just had, had to spend extra time talking about an exam to make sure that folks knew exactly what was going on, or I spent a little extra time educating or, you know, because that next person has got to come in for their pap too. Mm -hmm. Right. Or I'll book extra space if I know it's going to be difficult or, you know, I'll have nursing staff say who was fantastic. will say like, Hey, you know, we're just Dr. Sheila's just finishing up. Someone had some extra questions so that they know that they can ask their extra questions. Mm -hmm. But like, do you want to know what's going to make me way more behind is in three years when my traumatized patient comes back and this exam now takes 30 minutes because they're hyperventilating, mm-hmm. remembering what happened the last time. Mm-hmm. And you spend two appointments actually not doing the exam. Yes. And it wasn't necessarily you, but that definitely is the reality for folks right now is they were like, I've been hurt every time I've come in. Right. I've been hurt for 15 years. I've been hurt for 20 years every time I come in. And you're like, well, then is today the best day to do an exam or is another day the best day? You made it in, right? Goals. And that's, and that's what I tell people when it comes to pain, as I say, you know, a pelvic exam is probably not going to be comfortable, both physically, like mentally, emotionally, it's probably not going to be comfortable. You're in a very vulnerable space. And I understand that, but it shouldn't be painful. And if it is, it typically means that something is, needs to be addressed. And so I need to know about it. Like, I don't want you to just sit there in silence. If a pap is truly painful, something's probably not okay. And that's not that patient's fault. It's not something that they did, but is there something else going on that I'm going to miss because you're like a classic example of cervical motion tenderness, right? Like it's a huge warning sign to something going on. And if a patient just assumes that a pelvic exam is supposed to hurt mm-hmm. and they don't comment to me, like I... I don't want them to think that that's the goal is you just shut your mouth and open your legs and just let me do this. And we're done. That right that there sounds nobody. like sexual assault, right? Like when yes. you say that literally sounds like sexual assault. And I think a lot of providers really miss that. I think, you know, we get really caught up in checking off our check marks that we need to do every day. And we really, it's missed on us a lot of how this is actually felt and experienced by the patient. Right. And it's, well, we see that. And I'm so glad that you brought up sexual assault because you see that in other aspects of language when it comes to birthing and, and paps, right? Like how many times have you heard a provider say, 
all right, scoot down to the end of the bed for me. Like in a different context. Oh my goodness. And so there's really subtle changes that you can make. And it's, it's funny, maybe this is actually how we started talking. There's some really subtle changes you can make. So we say exam table instead of bed, because I want to completely desexualize that. I don't say for me, I, I slip up, of course, but I'll say, can you bring your bottom to the end of the table as far as is comfortable for you? And, and say like, this is for you, right? Or I'll explain, you know, it's to make this more comfortable. It sometimes, it usually helps to have you come to the end of the table. Can you come to the end of the table? I call them footrests instead of stirrups. I call it a drape instead of a sheet, stuff like that. And it's actually the stirrups thing. Mandy. <laughs> right. Chrissy dropped in my DMs recently. This is how I told the story to Hehe. I was like, Chrissy drops into my DMs. And I was like, who is this person? Because you know, people on the internet get feedback. And I know that. And he he knows that. And so I was like, someone's coming into my DMs, giving me feedback about what I said. And I, you just have to like be in a place for it. And then I read this message. <laughs> and let me read this message to you. Oh, ready? Dramatization. And for listeners, my Instagram does not make it abundantly clear that I'm in healthcare or a physician. And that's for my it's, own it's privacy. So it was just like part it's of a name <laughs> and then your random... picture and then like a dog or something. <laughs> right. It's some br- random brunette who's like messaging Mandy it says, hi, I love your account. The info, the advocacy, honestly, the whole vibe you're doing fantastic things. Are you open to a constructive suggestion in regards to some of the language that you use often? Yeah. And that's what, (laughs) and that's what I got. And I was like, uh, am I? (laughs) And you know, like I am trying to run a very trauma aware facing business, internal business. We've done so much work this year on like timing and white supremacy pillars and things like that. And how can we really be critical about, about it? And, and how can we feel good in ourselves? And usually when we feel good in ourselves, we're doing something different than a white supremacy pillar, different than where we've been shown, different than we've been told to do. And I say that because the folks listening are learning a language from you right now that's different than what they've seen, that's different than what they've learned and said before. So we can rattle something off in 15 seconds. You want this, you want that, you want this, and intake is done and boop, boop, boop. But it's not like it's going to feel different when they start using different language. And so it feels good inside. It's the other things that are going to feel like they're unraveling, like the timing Yeah. and someone might be waiting for me. And I don't know how someone's going to respond because this is new language for me, but in, inside it's like, I think I can handle the response. Cause I think this feels right. So I read it again and I was like, okay, well, they didn't message again all the things that they need to tell me they literally you literally just said that and I was like well because that's what I usually get and I'm like okay okay yeah I'm in a space but like I get it all the time and I respond I try to be very assertive when I respond because I am not open to getting bitch slapped in my comments without warning and from someone who is like um, 
rude or but it didn't sound like that so I was just like can you introduce yourself yeah well you wanted to know if I was some random person or like who I was and so I think so you said yeah sure what's up do you mind introducing yourself your account is private and so because you had agreed to hearing what I had to say and then but I could clearly tell that you really kind of wanted context first I started by introducing myself and then basically said what I had wanted to talk to you about because you had given me an opening to do it. Like you had agreed to doing this and had you not said sure what up, if you had said, I just want like, who can you, do you mind introducing yourself, whatever first, then I would have just introduced myself and I was needed for you to say, what did you want to say? Yeah. Um, I was open because I didn't need you to be a certain thing. I just wanted a little back and forth of transparency, which is my assertiveness because folks feel like I've seen Mandy for three years on here. I now can tell Mandy that she shouldn't be talking about VBAC because VBAC is dangerous and deadly. And I'm just like, ah, thank you. Not here for it. And also incorrect. It's, <laughs> it's very one-sided. Like I'm giving into the internet and people are like, why don't you teach about this? And I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on. But yes, I was interested in an exchange. I didn't need you to be a certain person. I needed a little bit of like transparency relationship. And and, and I thought, who asks permission? I was like, okay, I'm interested. I'm interested. Who asks yeah. permission? And it felt, it, I was curious. And, and then you said uh, a little bit about yourself mm-hmm. that you're in Canada and the U S yeah. So I did all of my training in the States, like in the Midwest, and then I'm, I'm Canadian. And so when the pandemic hit and the city that I was in got absolutely rocked, I ultimately decided that I wanted to go home to practice. Mm-hmm. So I was board certified in the U S and then came and got my license in Canada. So I've seen kind of both healthcare systems. And I think I mentioned that, like what my clinical interests were and that they were reproductive health and all that fun stuff. And then I kind of dove into one of the things that we talked about here and kind of leads into another topic, which is you had made this really great video that was aimed at letting, like informing and allowing patients to advocate for themselves in regards to the use of stirrups within the birthing world. And you were kind of specific about like during labor and for someone who is very deliberate and intentional on their language when it comes to that stirrups has a certain, it can have a certain sexualized aspect to it, which can be triggering for people who, even if they haven't, you know, experienced sexual assault can just be triggering because it's like a weird exam where someone's like all up in my space and they're saying words like, so I had said, Hey, like, you know, you might want to consider you know, using another phrase and and I had given other examples, but it opened up this really wonderful conversation about what I call the language gap, which is you really wanted to make sure that first of all, the way you use stirrups and footrests, those terms in the hospital, in a birthing experience are different than what they mean in the clinic. So how so? Okay. So in the clinic, anybody who's undergone a pelvic exam will know you have the exam table and your doctor will pull out these places for you to rest your heels, right? right so you're, right. they come out like this and yeah, or like this, I guess, and you rest your heel in both of them, which puts you in what's essentially like a squatting position, but with you on your back. Yep. And the reason for that is basically because 
the bottom part of a speculum, the handle of a speculum comes down and your vulva and your vagina are very close to the exam table. And so to put you into that position or for you to go into that position allows us to be able to maneuver without being hindered and without you being hurt. It's very difficult to do pelvics sometimes without that. And if you've ever had a pelvic exam in like an emergency room, you'll notice the difference, right? They probably put something underneath your, your back end to, to tilt you up a little bit. Those were traditionally called stirrups, right? They're things that you put your heels into to hold your legs. Trauma-informed language basically says, maybe stop doing that. And so we call them footrests because it's a place where your foot rests. And when I was in my training, they called them footrests in the hospital as well, because we had birthing beds mm-hmm. that we just called them footrests and said, it, how high do you want these footrests? Do you want them low, lower? Do you want them up really high? So your knees are like up by your ears. Like, how do you want these? Your video called them stirrups because I think where you guys are, they're two separate entities. There's a footrest where you can place your heel and then there's a higher, like, I guess almost sling thing where your legs get put into if you're thinking like old school medical shows, it's like the thing that people with broken legs would put their leg into to like hold it up almost. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So very different. The stirrups that I am talking about, it's a whole mechanism. Yes. So you pull it out of the bed of the labor bed and it could be a foot rest. It, you put your whole foot there. So it's yeah. as long as my arm. And you can put your, almost as long as my arm, you put your foot there or you spin, the nurse would spin the whole thing around, lift up this other cradle yes. and you cradle your calf in that. Yes. So we so call that entire down. mechanism a foot rest or a leg rest. So we never called it a stirrup. It was either a foot rest or a leg rest with the idea being that this is where you rest this body part. Even when you were practicing in the U S you had that or only when you, yeah. So, yeah. So in the U S I had never heard somebody call it a stirrup. I knew they did because of my own experience and from like some older docs, but like everybody called it a foot rest or a leg rest because we didn't use them very often. Like you held your own legs or your support partner did or nursing asked you. And so if you put it there, it's because you were literally taking a rest And so we called like, and didn't want to hold your leg anymore. So I had reached out to you, Manny, and was talking about this. And, and you basically said, or the the thing that kind of hit me the hardest was I never want to feel, I, I don't want to mislead patients. I don't want them to have me say a word like footrest and make connections and then get into a birthing space and be I guess I don't want to say surprised, but then be hit with this different thing, like this thing that they weren't expecting because your ultimate goal was, was advocacy and education. And I was just coming from it, from a different space. I was coming at it more from like provider to provider. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 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 And so we chatted about it and it brought up this conversation about the language gap, which is that we're now at this impetus where as more and more healthcare workers and providers start using more sensitive language, like trauma-informed language, gender-neutral language, like all of these different languages, while the rest of healthcare doesn't, we are now forcing patients into 
learning multiple languages, right? They now have to know that a footrest and a stirrup might be the same thing. It might not be the same thing. I have to ask my provider if it's the same thing. I need to like use context clues about what my provider is directing. Like all of this stuff, like is an exam table and an exam bed, the same thing, right? Like, is this paper sheet the drape or are they going to put a drape up in front of me? Like in the OR, like do I get a sheet sheet? It looks like a bed. It has sheets and pillows, but you call it a table. Right. But it's actually where I sleep. Yes. And it feels like shit. Yes. What the fuck is this? Yes. Is there a table coming in? Um, Do I get on that table? Because in the office, right. you call it a table. But right. in labor and delivery, the table actually has all of the tools on it. And yes. no person gets on it. Right. Like one person calls this a stirrup. And then so like, am I like standing in it? And then someone else calls it a footrest. But then that other person called this a footrest. And like, do I rest my feet on both or, or where do I put my leg? It's actually a leg thing, right? And then there's a whole thing in the OR that's even more a monstrosity that you are describing, which is like, and yeah. I, and I do, and I'm very, I, I don't know the word colorful and very abrasive. Some folks would say, and mostly providers come at me and say, you can't talk about stirrups like that. It's going to scare people. And so yeah. I felt my internal body reacted to your message. Right. And I don't know, I'd have to look at the timing, but I probably didn't respond right away. And I usually don't because I felt I didn't, I like read it, put it away. And that's like a totally valid and appropriate thing to do. Right. Like you, and it's, it's interesting because, and I, I don't mean this in any like sort of way other than exactly how I say it, which is your reaction to that comment is not far off how some patients who have been traumatized have reactions, right? Like there's a delay because it's uncomfortable, right? Like they don't know how to process what we're talking about. And so there was a bit of a delay of like, oh, that made me uncomfortable. I don't like that, which is really interesting. So we kind of go further into a conversation about it. Yeah. And it was a very interesting conversation. (laughs) And I'm so proud of us. (laughs) Yeah. Good job. I'm so proud of us. Look at us. I am like, (laughs) I, I am traumatized around stirrups and that's, that's like very understood personally and professionally. Like when you said no provider is going to leave a pap smear and say, that was the most traumatic pap smear I've ever experienced. I'm never doing pap smear again. I actually would believe that even a listener right now would associate a pap smear that they've done or witnessed as traumatic as a secondary or vicarious trauma because their client was traumatized potentially or reacted in a traumatized way. Yes. I think I should provide a disclaimer for that. Yeah. No person who genuinely cares about inflicting trauma or understands that this can inflict trauma is going to leave a difficult path and say that. Because if you don't recognize that a pelvic exam can be traumatic, you are not thinking about the fact that it was traumatic. You're just irritated that this took you 30 minutes and like, you're just not, and you don't know what you don't know. Right. Yeah. And you still, you can still feel a dissonance. You can still feel 
that's supposed to go this way, we're all upset. <laughs> right. Why are we all upset? Why, why are we supposed to be doing it? Quick, let's get it done. Everyone has 11 minute office visits. This is how it goes. Let's just go. This is difficult. They made it difficult for me. But in reality, what might actually be difficult is their difficulty is hard to see. I love what you just said. You said they left going, they made it difficult for me. Like no ownership, right? Yeah. And that's why I say it doesn't matter as much to certain providers because they're leaving the room going, I did everything what I was supposed to. I was, I don't want to say flawless, but this was not my problem. This was not my fault. I don't need to reflect. I did it right. They were difficult. They were hysterical. They didn't cooperate. They were non-compliant. They didn't listen to a gosh dang thing I said. And all of that onus gets put on the patient and the provider will leave the room. Not all, definitely not all, but some providers will leave the room and go like, not my problem. They made it complicated. And so it's without any ownership or recognition, it's, it just doesn't hit you the same way. For sure. I think the folks listening to us are in the in-between space. Absolutely. Hey, welcome. So glad you're here. Um, hello, <laughs> learning. Hello. Hi. So glad you're here. It's messy here. P.S. It's messy. <laughs> but they're in, they've never seen you work. They've never shadowed you. Someone like you. Nurses have never been in, you know, L&D nurses are very um, separated from each other. You know, they come yes. in in emergencies when it's almost the worst kind of experience to share with each other, right? These traumatic, mm. like, it, you know, innately traumatic, but also the language and all of the autonomy and all of the consent is out the window often. And that's what we kind of like share. And so we're like, okay, this is just what everyone's doing in the room, but they don't actually see us do an intake that takes an hour and a half. And we're like, wear your own damn clothes, right? I got a bra and you wear a bra. I don't care. So they're, they're kind of like, trauma aware curious they're like reaching like how do I do this how do I find this and I I do want to talk about that in in a minute I have a lot of folks coming at me who are who are in the in-between mostly they're professionals never would a parent Mm -hmm. has a parent ever come out and said I hate that you talk so blatantly about stirrups because I think we should all be in dark in the dark it's healthcare that says I'm offended I'm angry that you talk like this because I'm not trying to do harm. And I thought potentially when you were like, I'm a doctor, I was like, oh, okay, sure. Yep, yep, yep. I'm sorry I offended you because I talked about stirrups. But really you're like, how do we help the language? How do we grow this team of trauma-aware professionals because it is our responsibility to be trauma-aware? Is it our responsibility to be doing this work behind the scenes? Even though I really love that we're kind of doing it not behind the scenes. Yeah. How are we going to change this language or how, how is it supportive language to clients and how do clients not have to do all the heavy lifting on it? Right. And it's, I think you can be intentional about having those conversations with other providers and other members of the care team without necessarily being, you know, overtly teachy. And so like something as simple as, you know, Mandy, if I'm, if I'm the physician and, and you were the, and you were L and D nurse and you said the word stirrups, just even as we were popping out of the room saying, Hey, when you said stirrups, which part were you referring to? And you tell me and I go, oh, we've always called those blank. We kind of find it's a little bit more, it's less triggering for some of our assault patients or some of our whatever. And 
basically leaving it at that. And if you want to ask more and and have a deeper conversation, then fantastic. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, also totally fine. You're not quite there yet in your journey, but at least you've heard the term. You've heard the other term. And then when I say the term multiple times going forward in the birthing experience, we're on the same page and you know why I'm saying it. And you might want to ask more questions. You might not, but at least you have now recognized, oh, like, but that implies like that is dependent on somebody within the sphere of the experience prerequisitely having the knowledge. And in a lot of spaces, they don't. And so to the point that like I have spent time with with folks and explained things to provide them with advocacy to go into other spaces, right? So like I'm referring you to so-and-so, you know, you might want like you can probably expect them to do blank, blank, and blank or you know, you might hear some different language from them when they say this, they probably mean that. Or if you, if you're curious, if you haven't heard something before, ask them. And I've told patients before, if you don't understand a term and they look at you as if you are dumb for not knowing what that term is, put the onus on me, say, blame me for that. Say, Oh, my physician has always said blank Yeah, because it's not your problem that we speak in a language that you don't understand. Yeah. It's not on you. And I have no problems taking that because I will take, I'll have that conversation with, with the other person down the road. Sure. Like that's, yeah, that's it's, it's actually a great opportunity. <laughs> right. Excellent. Yes. Um, I'm relishing the opportunity. I would love that. this conversation because I'm actually sending people to you and I'm like a little wary. So if we yes. can- Grab a coffee, take a seat. Let's have a conversation. Because I'm going to listen a lot and you're going to talk a lot and then I'm going to flip it and be like, Or we could step into 2022 and understand that the majority of folks that we're working with need a unique individualized experience. (laughs) Yes. yes. The way you say it feels really good. Like it is not anybody's fault that we speak this language, but ours, we've decided to like speak, speak in ways that speak in our medical terms, right? Yes. And Like you said, in our conversation, we're not getting clear for ourselves, for each other in the healthcare professional space on these words, which is a really exciting opportunity because you and I specifically spoke about stirrups and I specifically use the term stirrup Yes, because of the intention behind its use at the majority of the time in the country that I'm in at this time. Now, everything I say on the internet Like if you hear something on the internet and it is, does not apply to you, then that means it does not apply to you, right? Everything on the internet, but often more often than not, and I can back it up with receipts of tens of thousands of comments, clients, students, that Mm -hmm. the intention behind the stirrup is not a footrest and it's not an option. Right. And that was a, and I think I said in our, in our texting conversation, I basically had to pause and stop because that had not been my experience. Like I knew about it. I like, we had talked about it extensively in my training in regards to obstetrical violence and consent and informed consent and what that looks like and trauma-informed language and all of this stuff. And I was like, my co-chief 
did her major research on obstetrical violence. And she was a close friend of mine. Like this was not You're in a unique container here. All of our listeners are like, where'd she go to school? (laughs) (laughs) No, I very much was. And that was fought for, right? Like it was to the point that, you know, residents would come back from certain experiences and be like, what did I just witness? That was so not okay. And we had to have older and more experienced attendings go, yeah, you're going to have to get used to seeing that more often. It's the norm, but no, it shouldn't be. You should get used to advocating for against your colleagues and stepping up and being like colleague to colleague. That's some bullshit right there. Right. Right. Exactly. In residency, it's difficult for, for listeners. We, we briefly touched on what residency looks like. You need to understand the hierarchy and medical education is like military style hierarchy to certain levels, depending on the what we call malignancy of a program or like how bad a program is. It's like a, you speak when spoken to type of picture. The first year doesn't talk back to the second year who doesn't talk back to the third year who doesn't talk back to the attending. Like it's like, yeah. And you can be reprimanded and punished essentially for doing it. I was very fortunate to not be in that space. My program worked very hard to cultivate a culture that eliminated that to as much as they could. But the concept of me as a resident, even as a third year chief, as a resident, speaking back to, you know, a specialist for how they did, not going to be a thing, like was not an applicable. So it was surreal. Like I I totally understood where you were coming from. Once you had kind of laid it out, I just needed the, the space to be laid out. But you actually brought up another really interesting fact, which is that most of your content is geared towards social media and social media has time and space limitations and social media doesn't really allow you the opportunity to be nuanced. Like you can't, you're trying to get a lot of information out there in a digestible, you know, relatable, relatable space. Like that video would not have been nearly as impactful if you had spent the first 30 seconds explaining what a foot rest and a leg rest and a stirrup is in these different spaces. So we're dealing with this, like, it's almost like clients and patients and providers are speaking two different languages and social media is another dialect. It's like French versus English versus, you know, Southern. And it's like, yeah, you're saying the same words, but the context, like, unless you are in that space, the context is like lost on someone from Michigan. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Which was kind of interesting to me. I have had to learn how to speak the social media language and you're really good at it. (laughs) Like you're fluent. It's really hard to be this bridge between two different languages and try and impact people so that they feel empowered when they go in and then sit there and have, if we're going to relate it back to language, it's like, you're, you're bilingual. You're trying your best. And someone is always screaming at you going, be better at this. Yeah. Why aren't you fluent? Why don't you know this obscure term that like, why aren't you using it? Or we don't use that. And it's like, you would never accept that in real life. Right. (laughs) Right. Like no Southerner, no Southerner is going to sit in Michigan and be berated for not using a specific term. Yep. But we're okay doing that. You, 
you dug into like a huge fear and like obviously I'm working through it and it's it's comes up sometimes still but there's not a night that I don't go to bed and wonder like did saying that cause more harm like okay I talk about stirrups and I talk about the relationship that they are deep inside to someone's unconscious they are a trap they are restraint restraint they they are a restraint and if we get we get into a stirrup and we get into a bed and we put our legs up and we drop the bed and you put a 10 pound weight on your belly try jumping out when someone hurts you like try turning over try getting out try putting the bottom of the bed back on by yourself like it is a restraint and I know that visualization I know it's harmful for folks who are so passionate about helping and so passionate about birth and I like we feel it in this way that we're like sucked in even though it hurts and even though it's hard and even though it's wild we're sucked in like you said the the through through residency like I have to I have a connection with OBGYNs we survived this but it's it's in such an ugly way right now it's it's fixable we go through the trauma ourselves I don't want to hurt anyone by connecting those dots but I don't think not connecting those dots is more helpful I think Mm -hmm. connecting those dots is helpful we can have these conversations but but yeah there's always that risk that we're gonna we're going to say something that is harmful and that is not trauma-informed. And I do not have trauma-aware language all the time on social media because that's not the language that's being used right now. It's, it's a net. It's a net. I hope to get the ears of the folks that are curious, like, oh, th- that's a connection that maybe I'm interested in. But it's, it's really not the whole story. I, I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying. And I have the same fear all the time when I speak about non, you know, reproductive based things. And like, did I make this like mental health and other things? Did I make this worse? But there's certain things that I do in office to mitigate that, that you're doing naturally by being on social media. A really great example is I don't have conversations about what a pap or a pelvic or assault and everything like that is going to look like when my patient has disrobed, we have that conversation closed. Like closed. Even if I find something abnormal on a pelvic, I say, look, take a little time, get centered, get dressed, crack the door when you're ready. And I'll come in and chat about it because this is not a conversation we should be having while you're naked. So we wait. And so I think there is a bit of a buffer in social media in that you can be a little bit more. I still think people should try when they can, when it's appropriate and applicable to use more sensitive language. But if you can't, if your message is not going to get across in a way that is genuine and authentic, at least social media allows you to have that conversation when the patient is home and safe and dressed and isn't looking at strangers and can digest this and have a visceral reaction in a way that is not in front of six random people with their legs open as they're trying to have a baby. And I would think that the benefit of having those conversations 
early and often and exposing folks to things that are going to potentially be difficult for them to hear before getting to that space is so much more empowering than using a softer language and having them exactly like you said, having them show up to that birthing space and having someone else throw the word stir up at them. And that being the first time they recognize what this is going to entail. Yeah. Because yeah, we don't do it with anybody else, right? Like no surgeon waits until you show up to the OR to be like, by the way, I'm going to have to, you know, cut you, your abdomen open. Right. Like no one waits until that space to tell them that. Right. right? Nobody waits until the day of a colonoscopy to explain to a patient what that's going to look like. Right. So why are we all pretending like it's somehow acceptable to wait until the most vulnerable moment our patients are in to be like, by the way, this is what this is going to look like. By the way, we already put your legs up. We already took right. your bed off. Hope you're okay with this. <laughs> and you should just keep pushing because this is how we do it. So personally, I think it's because medical professionals, the medical industry knows and recognizes that if patients and pregnant people know these things before going in, they might become a more difficult patient. They might become a more, you know, assertive patient. They might start to say no in places where if we go ahead and get your, your legs up in the stirrup, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to say no while you're on your back with the stirrups already in check, right? Like it gives those patients and those clients and those birthing people, any patient, not even a pregnant person, but any patient, the opportunity, almost like a forewarning of like, you have options here. You don't have to be in the stirrups. You don't have to use the footrest. And I think that that triggers a lot of medical professionals because that's your control. That's how you keep control in the room. That's how you were trained. That's how you were told that you keep these people safe. And if you can't do that, how are you going to keep these people safe? And instead of looking at yourself and going, all right, my tools of the stirrups and the footrest have been taken away from me. What other tools do I have to continue to keep these people safe? Instead, you just spiral and you go, oh my God, well, now I can't keep people safe. And that I think is just that is, it is where we are in healthcare right now. We've got to start digging deeper in ourselves to say, okay, if all of my tools aren't available to me, how do I still get my job done in a safe way, keep everyone safe and also reduce the most amount of trauma as possible for everyone involved. But I think that, I think that speaks more to an overriding savior complex in medicine, right? Totally. Like it is not, it is not my job whether it's in a relationship with my partner or my parents or my friends or as a physician with a patient, it is not my job to fix you or even to necessarily ensure your safety. My job is to make sure that you understand what are the options and that I give you information as to what is probably the safest or the most likely to succeed or whatever, whatever it is. And then it is your body. You then make that decision, right? So my job is not to ensure that everything goes well. My job is to make sure that you understand that the choice that you're making may or may not make it more likely that things are going to go sideways. And if they do, to understand what my personal own next steps are. I can't control you as a patient. That's It's ludicrous to think that I, as, as an as a professional should be able to control 
who you are. Cause there's no other aspect of my relationship where I do that. Like, I don't look at my partner and tell my partner like, Hey, if you leave cereal out in the living room, we're going to get ants. So make the call. Do you want ants or do you like want to put your cereal away? And, that's and exactly my... how people are spoken to though. Right. Like, but that's <laughs> that, like, that's my, yeah. that's, and, and if you, and if he chooses to leave the cereal out, okay, we've got ants. I guess now we have to, we have to deal with the ants, right? So in a birthing space, okay, you can, how do you, how do you want to do this? Like you can continue to do this or we can do this. I think like option B is going to be safer, but like, if you choose option A, you chose option A. Okay. Whole deep dive into actually what are the goals? And actually I probably should ask the person who we need to prioritize their goals. And then what, yeah, what, what it looks like. It's a whole, it's, it's not in the moment. And these conversations can hopefully help the folks that are in the room that have only done it that way, that perpetuate mm-hmm. that that's the normal way. That's how we do it. That's policy. That's that you and I, we thought we were clarifying language because of a location difference. Right. <laughs> we thought we were clarifying language because we didn't know the alternative languages for each other. You know, you were like, mm-hmm. Hey, we don't use bed. And now we're like, but everyone does. So are we confusing folks? Are we condescending? Because we say foot rests and then someone decides that they're going to rest my leg for me. Like right. that, that's not what we talked about on the internet. Like I'm on my right. hands and knees. Why do I need to rest my leg? It's, it's also this internal conversation. And I want, I want to, I want to wrap up and be respectful of your time. And I want, I want folks to remember the conversations that you're having in your practice mm-hmm. or our responsibility. Oh, yeah. everyone hearing this podcast, your conversations in your practice are our responsibility. We have to be aware of our language. The examples that you gave are really great examples of there are no rules for this, Mm-mm. right? And so we can come up with new language. We should be coming up with new language. We should be talking about it with each other because we look like a bunch of fools right now. <laughs> yes. Talking about yeah, all the same people. things. And we're what? Yes. We're hurting people, right? Oh, like yeah. Not only do we look like clowns out there, but we are actively harming the people that we all have dedicated our lives to helping. So we're not even meeting our end goals of what we originally all got into this field for. It is, it hurts my heart when I see, when I have a patient in my office who is shaking at the concept of what is about to happen. And because no one has ever had a conversation with them about it, like ever. And I think to myself, no other, no other relationship where someone sees you naked has no conversation. And if it did, you would exit out of that relationship and you would consider the fact that what they did awful, right? If somebody ever put you in a situation where you were undressed and they didn't speak to you, you would, no one would think that is okay. Why is it just accepted within this relationship? Right. And I tell patients, this is supposed to be a team effort. It is my job to tell you the options and your job to tell me which one works for you. Right. 
I need you to communicate with me so that we can come up with a good decision and I will communicate with you. And sometimes your options are going to be many and sometimes your options are going to be few. And, but ultimately you have to tell me what's going to work for you because your values and your needs and your goals for yourself might not line up with, with mine as your physician. So we have to have that conversation, but it's not the patient's job to start that, right? Like I can't spend, you know, 90% of my day going, I'm the professional who's trained and has education. You should value what I'm providing for you. And then 10% of the time go, well, it's not, I'm not supposed to say that. I'm not supposed to start that. Well, no, like I would initiate a conversation about antibiotics. Why wouldn't I be the one to initiate the conversation about what a PAP is, what a pelvic exam is? Mm -hmm. Like it's this very, not my problem type of mentality, which is surreal to me in medicine because it doesn't apply anywhere else. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not my problem. Well, there's a lot of problems. So if you can just get one off your plate, I can understand why folks will be like, I'm going to need this. Like professionals will need a barrier a little bit instead of just bringing like, let's just bring in the way that we do it. Let's just do it that way because that's what I'm used to. And you know, you're good. You're good. We good. Oh, right. We're good. Everyone's good. And there's most people aren't good. (laughs) The one thing I will say to listeners who are in who are professionals in this regard. And it really, really helped me when I was early in my trauma-informed kind of space. And it actually works really well for personal relationships too, is remind yourself repeatedly that intent is not the same as outcome. Like you can apologize for both. Okay. Just because you didn't intend to hurt somebody or intend to cause a reaction or intend to do something that re-traumatize somebody doesn't mean that that wasn't the outcome, right? You can apologize for having done something to somebody and acknowledge that that wasn't what you intended to do. Mm -hmm. And that works the same in a birthing space or in a doctor's office as it does in a car accident, right? I didn't intend to hit your car but I can apologize for the fact that I rear-ended you like, and that I hurt you. And it works really well in, in relationships. It works great with kids when you're trying to teach kids what that means. But in a birthing state, like you are allowed to do that. And you are allowed to, you are allowed as a provider to take a step back and recognize that you're being absolutely ridiculous about something and change course. Yeah. I've done it with like my, my own partner where I've had, like, we've been in an argument and I've had to step back and go, I'm being ludicrous about this right now. Like I, it's coming from a deep, visceral, emotional thing. It's ridiculous. It's my own personal thing. I got to step back. You can do that as a provider. If you're sitting there and you're pushing on somebody to do something and you're getting frustrated and it's getting ridiculous, you're allowed to take a step back and go, I am not being smart or intentional about this. And there's, it's from something deeper. I don't need to take this personal. This feels inside of me. This isn't inside of me. This is your experience, your pap. Exactly. Exactly. And I was very, very fortunate that my training was with diverse leaders and 
an incredibly diverse patient population that didn't look like me. And so I was thrown into the deep end of learn that your way of doing things is not how everybody does things or thinks about things or speaks about things or feels about things. And so I was really fortunate, but if you're not someone who works in that space, if you are the lone voice of change in that space, it's okay to feel triggered. It's okay to feel uncomfortable. It's okay to recognize that you have emotional connections to things that you never realized that you did. And it's okay to give yourself some grace and go, "Mm, I really don't like how this makes me feel, but I've got to like figure out why. And then the more you model it and get comfortable, the more other people will. Like my interns in residency were more comfortable because we were comfortable and their interns will be more comfortable because they're comfortable. But like, like you said earlier, we're all learning, we're all growing. We're all trying to figure this out. We are. None of us on this call are perfect. Like in this, we all slip up. I slip up constantly. The The point is to be intentional about it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. to practice. It's okay to practice, right? You've got to start yes. somewhere. So pick today, choose today to start with tiny languages, to start with tiny open-ended questions. Just one open-ended question per patient is good enough for a start. And you can build on that. And if you mess up your language, just apologize, fix it and move right on. It doesn't have to be a big thing. Patients will recognize when you are trying. They really do. And and they expect us to mess up and that's okay. You're allowed to make mistakes as you're learning and growing. Classic example is I had a really difficult pelvic with a patient who is a female to male transgender patient. They have a sexual assault history. They brought a supportive person with them. They had told me ahead of time that this was going to be a difficult experience for them. So we had to talk through like dissociation and deep breathing. Their partner who was there was non-binary. I left that room going, oh my goodness, I misgendered them multiple. Like I called their partner. I hadn't used general neutral language on a couple of different occasions. I tried to use they, them as much as I could. I definitely slipped up a couple of times. I felt awful. So I just apologized. I just said, Hey, like, Oh, sorry. And whatever. Or like I stuttered over myself Right. Um, a week later, my patient came back and I said, you know, how are you feeling? And they go, I can't remember what their partner's name was, but they're like, my partner could not stop raving about that. They were so thrilled that you tried to use gender neutral language. Like they had never seen a path like that before. They couldn't believe we talked about it. Like there was no like I'm here beating myself up about this. Right. I know. All I'm they like, heard oh was God, that I was trying. So awesome. that is what you need to understand when you're doing trauma-informed language with patients is yeah. a lot of times just the fact that you are trying is remarkable to them. And it doesn't mean you don't try to get better, but give yourself some grace. Oh my goodness. You give your patients grace. You give your colleagues grace. Give yourself some too. And just breathe, (laughs) breathe, try hard and breathe. (laughs) You said trying. And then earlier you said intent and outcome. You were trying externally. Yes. That's different than going in and being like, well, I didn't try to hurt you. I always think I have to come out (laughs) as like a safe person, almost like wear it, almost be very clear. So like what you were doing was changing your language. That's very clear. Hey, what are your pronouns or my pronouns are, or, Hey, my name is Dr. So-and-so, but I like to be called this. And that is an outward 
I am open to whatever, you know, what you want to be called. I am acknowledging, Hey, sometimes we do this, but you know, I'm open to this, this, or this. And I've seen all kinds of things, even if you're faking it and you're like, I just heard it on a podcast that it could be done this way. I don't really know, but I'm open to it. Right. Outwardly trying instead of like, well, if they just asked, I would have done it. That's not outwardly. It's not, it's not the same. Intent. Um, Yeah. It's awesome. I love that story. (laughs) Chrissy, thank you so much. I knew this conversation would be so good. I'm (laughs) so sorry. It took like your whole morning. No, it actually, it worked out really beautifully. I have not been able to have a conversation like this in a while since, you know, I got out of training and it's always, I like, I am a huge proponent of education and advocacy and all of this stuff. And so it's always a thrill to chat about it. I would encourage, you know, folks who want to dive in a little bit, there's really great resources all over Mandy's page. And of course, over like the internet and the like, most major medical organizations have some sort of basic, like bare bones discussions about trauma-informed care. The American Academy of Family Physicians has a whole article on kind of the basics. They've got a good couple of lines in there for some script changes that you can make, some of which we touched on, but this was, this was delightful. I love this. this. Yeah. And (laughs) Stephanie Tillman, have you ever learned from Stephanie Tillman? No, no. So unfortunately not. I am still kind of like Stephanie, she's on my, she'll be on my list. I'm going to connect you. I'm going to connect you because you're like right there on track and, and it's exciting and you speak about it so well, you teach about it so well. And I'm so thrilled for your students and interns and team to have this opportunity. And I know they are so grateful for it if they don't tell you every minute of every day (laughs) doesn't come up all that often (laughs) they work in a unique space it does come up or doesn't is that it doesn't we're usually so busy educating patients that we never touch base they are so grateful for this background that you are giving them you are such a patient educator that not just your clients which I know you know but if you don't get those dms that you've changed their lives then I'll I'm happy to remind you anytime this it's life-changing what you're doing Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'll say the same for you guys. I, you know, followed you, Mandy, because I really love the education that you were putting out and the advocacy. And so if you're ever wondering if you're reaching out to people, you are, because I'm <laughs> relatively well-versed in, in some of the stuff that you're already talking I'm about and I still follow for content. So it's been, it's been delightful. Thanks. Yeah. Well, anytime you want to chat, we're here. We'll um, push record or not. I love it. And thank you so much for your time. It's an honor. Well, thank, thank you. And if you ever end up you know, having another conversation and want a physician's, you know, point of view. Yes. I'm already like, yep. I have some ideas. Come hit me up and we'll continue to have a conversation like this because it's, it needs to happen. Yeah. And uh, like we had said, when we talked, you know, if we're going to have conversations in safe spaces for patients, we should do it for other professionals as well. I was super activated, Chrissy. (laughs) I am so grateful that, that we can adult. I feel like I was using all of my adult muscles to get over that abuse in the past and just be like, this person's not here to tell me what to do. This person's not here to put me in timeout. This person is here no. to have a grown up conversation and we're centering the patient and I can feel really safe with that. Instead right. of you're centering your feelings around my use of the words, exactly. which is usually what happens, which I thought to myself, how would I 
life. Like, especially, oh my goodness, especially being young women in the medical yeah. field. Yeah. Oh my goodness. The liberties people take. The audacity. The, the utter audacity, like, oh my goodness. And I've had like people tell me like, you know, you always like, I dress professionally for work. I don't wear scrubs. And they said, why do you dress professionally? I said, look, if I put scrubs on and sneakers, I look like I'm about 19. One of my barriers to getting people to take me seriously and to not take completely inappropriate liberties with me is to look like a professional because it's harder to do that when I look like the professional and the authority. They call you the nurse? Constantly. It's it's bananas. The number of emails that I get that are related to miss so-and-so, despite people knowing I'm a doctor. The number of emails that I get where they refer to Dr. Jones, Dr. Smith, and Chrissy when we're all physicians. The number of patients who ask my nursing staff, am I going to meet the doctor? And they then have to explain that was the doctor. And I actually had a patient look at my nurse and go, are you sure? As if she's also incapable of doing this. I've had patients, you know, refuse to stop having a conversation. So like somebody showed up randomly, somebody showed up to randomly to have a procedure done that my nurse was going to do. She happened to be off that day. So I started the conversation with, Hey, you know, so-and-so is out today. I'm running both of our schedules. Just letting you know, let's quickly, let's, let's get this done and get you home. And he goes, well, I have a full appointment next week. So we'll just do that now. I said, no, like I have another patient here. No, it's fine. We can just talk about it now. I said, no, like, no, no. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no point in me coming back. So we can just take a seat. We'll talk about it now. I'm like. It's funny <laughs> because my no usually means. And I'm like. Shut your mouth. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Oh. I've been referred to as the nurse. I've had patients look at my medical student as a third year chief resident and go, what do you think? I was incredibly, incredibly fortunate to work with male residents and male attendings who had no qualms about letting patients know what my role on the team was and deferring to me and speaking to me in that manner, which means that I have a lot less patience for it now because I was empowered for so long. But the, if this is what people are comfortable doing in person in a physician's office, right. I can only imagine what they are comfortable doing behind the anonymity of social media and a keyboard. Right. So, right, right, right. And I had that in my head when I reached out to you of as a young female in this space, how would I feel if somebody came at me or something? I wanted to have the conversation, but I also know I'm I'm not entitled to your time or mental energy or anything else. So I love that it worked out. I chose my words in the way that I did because that happened. Yeah. I'm really grateful for those words. Exactly. And for everybody else, you know, who, who is listening, if you want to have a conversation with a colleague or someone else, consider opening up that line of communication like that, right? Like where you ask for permission to enter somebody's space. And if they say no, then respect that. that. No, right. Also recognize that if they're not there to meet you, it's going to be an incredibly frustrating conversation for you anyways. And you don't want to do that for your own mental health. Don't take it personally. Like me stepping away and like needing a minute because I was activated had nothing to do with you you can't take it personally I literally needed a minute because I didn't want to spout off because I felt like it was important 
and I wanted to be intentional, like you said, I think as young women, young professionals in healthcare, white professionals having these conversations, I do think it is our responsibility to have them publicly when we are comfortable and we can, we have the capacity because, and having them with each other because our audiences online, mine are mostly white. When someone has the audacity to come at me, I am sharing like, oh, we're having these conversations. Here's, here's the thing that you don't know. We have to be, you know, we have to be in these new spaces. Here's some books that I'm reading to help me learn about these new spaces. Here's some, you know, things that I'm doing trauma-informed or um, learning about the history of, of, of obstetric violence, learning about the history of, of midwifery and how it was completely abused and, and how racism plays into white supremacy plays into my discomfort with someone having the audacity is like my own thing that I'm having to work through. And it is being white and it is the privilege of being white and being female, being educated, being middle-class. So I really like that we can do that specifically and uniquely because we're women in medicine, but also because we're a nurse and a physician and yes. a holy cow of having these like open conversations of teaching each other, being open and taking criticism and feedback. Yeah. Are we improving the space and still centering the patient and also what book club are you in so that you're covering all your bases because there's still all of these right open spots of ed- needing education. Right. And so like, basically, I guess if you boil down to it, be intentional about how you talk to people and give yourself grace to learn. And that is humility. Like if you have, yes, if you, if you do your best to model those two things, not only are you going to probably have better relationships with patients, clients, colleagues, but your own mental health is going to improve if you allow yourself to make mistakes and learn and grow and you do your best to be kind and intentional and sensitive to folks. Cause I don't know if anybody else is listening, but I know that when I find out that I have hurt somebody, it makes me feel like garbage. So why would you not do your best to not do that? And also, you know, not feel that way, but like not feel awful to yourself when you, yeah, when you yeah. mess something up. Yeah. So. For sure. But oh, thank delightful. you. Yeah, I, I do have some ideas. I'm going to send you Stephanie. I almost want to like have another one and talk about pap smears specifically. I know you talked about it today, but Stephanie talks about yeah. it. And that's where my midwife learned about paps. And I experienced a pap after my midwife was like, I was like, what you're doing is different. And she's like, have you heard of Stephanie Tillman? I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Oh yeah. So we'll connect. And then you'll be like, oh my gosh, I have to talk about, and then we'll just come back and do it again. Sounds like a plan. And thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was, I want to copy and paste you a (laughs) million and five times and just disperse you like everywhere, all over the world to every clinic and hospital. I wish that all providers had the mentality of, I am secondary. My patient is primary and it is my job to make sure that they feel comfortable. And I'm hoping that we are kind of part of that transitional 
you know, transition, right? Where the old school is starting to become quieter, less of how we do it. And, you know, more and more folks are coming out of training and entering into this space with that intention. That is, that is the goal. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Bye guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's Pulse Check podcast. If you want to be on the Pulse Check podcast, either anonymously or not, tell us your story or have a conversation about the topics that we've discussed or haven't discussed. You can find us at Instagram at pulsecheck.podcast. Also, there are links below that Dr. Sheeler has shared with us. If you want to learn more and creep into that trauma-informed care space, I encourage you to look at the links below and we'll see you next week. Inside the halls of American hospitals, millions of people find comfort, healing, and support. But for many doctors and nurses, this couldn't be further from the truth. This podcast will dive into the shadows of American healthcare to investigate and uncover the abuse, control, and political power plays that leave the very people responsible for our nation's health broken and battered. We're sharing stories of professionals in medicine that have experienced horrendous treatment at the hands of a broken system that does nothing to stop the trauma. As the Association of American Medical Colleges states, long before the Me Too movement, women in medicine have instinctively banded together to counter a culture that too often tolerated harassment. From systemic trauma to abuse of power to the unspoken rules of cover-ups and corruption, Mandy Irby and Phoebe will take you to the darkest corners of healthcare in America so you can have an inside look at bringing humanity back to medicine. Sensitive content warning. This podcast will share details of triggering subjects such as sexual assault and workplace violence. So if you aren't in a space to listen, respect your mental health and tune in again at another time. If you or anyone you know has a story to share, please contact us on Instagram at pulsecheck.podcast. We'd love to share your story.